Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. This weekend, uh, the title of the message is I Refuse to Lose. And I'm going to walk you down a path that is extremely scriptural, uh, but I'm going to set it up by kind of bus chucking myself, all right? Because I am intensely competitive. I've always been this way. I, some would say I have a problem. Uh, in the last service, I could feel the judgment from about half of the room. Some were applauding this behavior. Others were sitting there judging me with their eyes, like, I can't believe you're a pastor. So I'll bus chuck myself. Uh, but I know there's some competitive people in the room. I, I, don't, I can't play basketball at the gym, at my gym, because uh, it's hard for me not to flip that switch, you know? Like if we're playing and uh, you, you say one little thing, like it's, it's on like Donkey Kong now, and, and I'm not a pastor anymore. I'm a thug. And uh, I mean, a couple months ago, my, I was with my boys at the gym, and I was just shooting around. We weren't even playing. And this big kid who looked like he was in high school, turns out he was, he was the starting center senior at Shap. Great, great basketball player playing in college now. He's like, hey, you want to play one-on-one? I'm like, yeah, bro, let's go. (laughs) I thought I could keep it under wraps. You know, I was trying to kind of show my boys, even though I'm in my 40s now, daddy still got it. Don't you worry about it. And, but I was still trying to be pastoral and set a good example. You know what I'm saying? So we start playing, and, and this kid, big kid, he starts backing me down like he was MJ. And I, I just, I was, I was being sensitive. I was like, oh, oh, oh that, that was good, good. Uh, he beat me the first game. And I was fine. Like, it, it was 11-7, you know, no big deal. I knew if I wanted, I could have flipped the switch. And some of you are thinking, yeah, sure. I'm not done with the story. <laughs> the kid made one comment at the end of the first game. And I thought... All right, son, let's go. Let's go. I am not Pastor Preston now. I'm just some dude at the gym who's middle-aged. I'm about to teach this young buck a lesson. Class is in session, kid. Let's just say second game, 11-4, I dominated him. But we have to play three because we have to know which one of us is better, right? He's like, you want to run it back? Now, I am wheezing. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hide that fact. Okay? I'm like, yeah, bro. Yeah, my son wants some water. I'll, let's, I'm going to get him some water. I'll come back. I took as long as I could to get that water. Came back, played a third, 11-5. I taught the kid a lesson. Let me just say this, though. No, no, no. No, you don't need to applause. You don't, you don't need to applaud. Here's why. Because if you would have been there, you wouldn't go to church here anymore. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, but did you lead him to Jesus? No, I probably pushed him further away, honestly. <laughs> but it's just, I've always been this way. That's why I don't play. Like, if you ever invite me over to your house for dinner and then you say, and to play games, I will know you're trying to shut this church down, okay? <laughs> I've just always been competitive and, and it, it's just, it comes out every once in a while and I try to kind of keep it under wraps and, and you know, not let the cat out of the bag, but it just happens every once in a while, like on our honeymoon. Uh, we'd been married 24 hours, 
And my wife was a two-sport college athlete, very, very competitive. That was, it was love God, be competitive. I don't care what else happens after that. And she grew up with two older brothers and an older sister. And they were, you know, they'd wrestle and they'd push around. And I was the oldest and I didn't do that with my brothers very often. And so we're kind of different that way. Well, when we were first together, like Holly, she was a button pusher. Like, I mean, she, she just, like, she'd want to see me flip that switch. Like, she just pushed me, like, come on, flip it. Let's see. Come on, let's go. So 24 hours, we're on a cruise ship, and she grabs the pillow off of our bed. And she just walks up to me, and she goes, wham. I'm like, that's so cute. Wham. She did it even harder. I'm like, woman, don't. Wham. Across the face. I'm like, babe, we've been married for 24 hours. Do you want me to exercise my authority completely? I didn't say that, I promise. I'm not that dumb. <laughs> There's a couple of men there like, I talk like that. Yeah, but. <laughs> Anyways, different message. <laughs> I was like, babe, don't, don't push my buttons. She literally pushes me. She's like, come on, let's go. Well, this was in a day where cruise ships had not been, been refurbished yet, you know? So it was like 70s, you know, decor. And remember the scratchy couches from the 70s? Well, we were on that cruise ship. And so instead of grabbing the sweet soft pillow off of the bed that she grabbed to hit me in the face with, I reached for the scratchy 70s pillow on the couch. She hit me again in the face. I reached for the pillow and I just went, wham! The zipper on the pillow caught my wife flush in the lip. And instantaneously, her lip just exploded on me. I am panicking immediately. And I, 24 hours we've been married, and all I heard myself say out loud was, please don't tell your dad. <laughs> she's crying and I'm going, I'm never going to do this again. Like, what, what did you do? You, you flipped the switch. Don't flip the switch. I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to hurt you. We were just playing. I promise I'll never do this again. It did happen like six months later, I'm sure. But here's the point. You're like, where's the point? I'm going to get to it. I was created as a very competitive individual. I hate to lose. But on a very serious note, there are some things at the top of my list, areas in life where I despise losing. And I want you to understand, one of those areas at the top of my list is I refuse to lose our children. I refuse it. I literally, teeth clenched, hands clenched, I refuse to lose our children. To the extent that we can do something to reach children, we will. And you're going to see why. It's scriptural. I'm not just preaching this because it's back to school weekend. I'm preaching this because this is the message the Lord gave me for this weekend. So I want to show you a couple of reasons why we must all have this mentality that we must refuse to lose as it relates to children in the kingdom of God. Here's answer number one, point number one. Because God is serious about kids. 
God is serious about kids. And you see all through Christ's ministry on the earth for those three years, you see some pretty serious moments with kids. Here's one of the ways you can see how serious God is about kids. Jesus scolds those who keep children from coming to him. Matthew 19, 13. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. Simple request. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. So the disciples ream out the parents for bringing the kids to Jesus. But Jesus said, and I'm pretty sure his tone was strong. To the same extent, extent the disciples just scolded the parents, I think Jesus scolded the disciples even more. He says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And Jesus placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. How do you know if you're keeping children from coming to him? Simple answer. If you're not bringing any of them to him. You know if you aren't bringing any children to Christ. It's just another way of saying, I am keeping children from coming to Christ. And Jesus scolds the disciples. Think about this, and this is not even one of the subpoints. Did you realize there's a place in Scripture where Jesus goes on record and says, let me just say, if you cause one of these children who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for you to tie a heavy cement weight around your neck and drop to the bottom of the ocean than be left in my hands. Okay, those are fighting words. He is serious about children. Jesus scolds the disciples for getting in the way of children coming to him. Here's another way that we see him being serious. He puts them under his name. Mark chapter 9, verse 36. Then Jesus put a little child among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. Now, to kind of help you understand this point, I'm going to tell a story, and it's going to sound like I'm name dropping. I don't name drop. I don't like the name drop. I, I, now that I don't respect people who do, I just don't think it's necessary. But you'll understand why I'm telling you this story related to this subpoint. okay? About a year, year and a half ago, uh, I got an invitation to go to a Diamondbacks game. And it happened to be the play-in game to the playoffs. And the invitation I received was from one of the two owners of the Diamondbacks. And he said, I'd like to bring you and your wife to the play-in game. And I said, well, my wife won't be able to come. She's at a volleyball match with my daughter, but I'll probably bring one of my sons. And he said, well, how many sons do you have? And I said, I have two sons. He said, well, there will be three tickets at will call under my name and yours for you and both your sons. Please come to the game. I said, okay, we would love to. Went home, I told the boys, and one of my sons said, Daddy, what are we going to wear? All we have is Rangers t-shirts. <laughs> so we had to run to the store. Don't tell the owner of the Diamondbacks. But we had to run to the store. We had to buy some D-backs t-shirts. And we go to the stadium that night, and we go to Will Call, and sure enough, my name and his name are on an envelope, uh, and it says guest of, and it had his name and mine underneath it. From the moment I received that envelope, everything was different. 
I, I've been to Super Bowls with, with great guests. I've been to World Series with great guests. I, I mean, I've had some, some special moments, but I've never been treated at a sporting event like I was treated at this one. We go into the stadium, we go down, we realize where our seats are. We're in the sixth row in the owner's section. And two innings in, at the end of the second inning, servers start coming to our seats asking us what we'd like to eat. And so my boys kind of gave me that look like, Daddy, are we allowed to order anything? I'm like, yeah, go ahead, order what you want. At the end of the second inning, she, she goes, gets the food, brings it to the kids, and I reach out my wallet and, and I said, how much is that going to be? She said, oh, it, it's going to be free, sir. It's already been taken care of by, and she said, the owner's name. My boys immediately, <laughs> at the revelation of a blank check, started strategizing which food groups would happen between which innings. And at every inning, the server came and made my sons feel like they were the kings of the earth. Even better than that, at the end of the third inning, the owner of the Diamondbacks, who was sitting in the front row with a young man in college and his dad, who was dying of cancer at the time, at the end of the third inning, he comes up to the sixth row and he says, Preston, I want you to take the boys and sit down in my seats in the front row behind the net. And I said, no, no, it's okay. These are great. You know, we were right behind Randy Johnson. Uh, and I said, we're, we're fine here. He said, no, no, no. I want you to go down there. I want you to think about this. The owner of the Diamondbacks in the play-in game goes and sits in the sixth row so that I can take my sons up to the front row and sit in his seats and eat free ice cream that he was paying for. Okay, they treated us like we were the most special people on planet Earth. Why? Because he put his name on us. He, in essence, said, however you treat me, I want you to treat my guests. And my boys will never forget that day. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Preston, how would you welcome me if I walked into this church? Don't just tell me how you'd welcome me. You want to know how I know you would welcome me? By however you welcome these children into my house. Preston, if you'd roll out the red carpet for me, then you make that carpet twice as long for these young children I died for. Okay, I want to make a strong statement, and I don't care if I'll get in trouble for saying it, but so help me God, I will go broke in this church. We will go broke as a church reaching these kids. I do not care. I do not care. I'm not telling you we're going to waste money, but I'm telling you, I am doubling down in this season of my life. I don't know what God's doing. We have an amazing thing going on, but we're going to do even more because we have to. We have to. God is serious. And here's the point. When you really love someone, and this someone being God, you take seriously what they are serious about. God is serious about our kids, and we must be too. Here's the second answer to the question. Because I'm an investor, not just me. Because God has called us as his children to be kingdom-minded investors. You are an investor. I am an investor. And let me just kind of refresh some of us on the principles of wise investing. I'm just going to give you two. Here's the first one. Wise investors think long-term, not just short-term. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. I love the way the message translates this. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Watch this next phrase. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. Listen, there's a term in investing. It's called compound interest. It's a very simple term. And it simply means the more I have my money invested, the longer I have it invested, the more money it makes me. Okay? That the interest just starts to create more and more money. Even if I don't continue to invest, if I just put a lump sum in the beginning, the interest makes me more and more money with each and every year I have that money in that investment. Okay, think about this. And if you're older like me or even older than me, don't take this personally. We are not the best investments in the church. We have far less time than they do. These children represent the best long-term investment in the body of Christ, period, point blank. They are the best investment. But here's the problem. When you only think about you, you won't invest in them. Beyond that, when you only think about today, you won't invest in tomorrow. Listen, we need to be the kind of people that every time we walk into a room and we see someone in a younger generation than us, we need to be thinking with an investment mindset. To this day, I've been a youth pastor. I did that for almost seven years. I was the young adults pastor for five plus years. To this day, I still walk into a room and I am constantly looking for the best soil to invest in. It's how my mind works. We have been created to be kingdom-minded investors. And our children represent the best long-term investment there is in the church. And I'm not just talking about money. Our time, our energy, they are a long-term investment. Here's the second principle of wise investing. Wise investors know what great investments look like. Proverbs 21.20, there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise but a foolish man squanders it. Let me kind of help you understand how we see resources here at this church. Every year we budget, uh, after praying as elders, uh, what we believe, uh, more on the safe side, but of course by faith, uh, the giving that will come in in a calendar year. And every year, uh, more has come in than what we budgeted since the beginning. And we're very grateful for that, but I want to help you understand something. When we get into a season where there is more uh, that has come in than what we budgeted, we don't sit around in the conference room and go, what do we do with it all? And just start making it rain wherever we want. Okay, listen, this is not my money, so I can't decide what to do with it on my own. This is not even our money, so we can't decide what to do with it on our own. It's all God's. This is his house and it all belongs to him. So here's what we do. When there is extra that comes in, we step back as elders and we pray. The lead team does this. We step back and pray, Lord, what do you want done with this extra? This goes back to a principle that God taught me years ago when we planted this church. I was very stressed about the finances. 
Uh, we, when we moved into this building, we had $800 in the church savings account. We were as week to week as you could possibly be, not because we spent wildly. There just wasn't a lot. We moved into this building. We didn't have enough money to buy chairs. You know what's amazing? That the church that was here before, uh, they had gotten into a little bit of trouble, and so they, they had to leave all of their assets here. So we moved into this building, projectors, chairs, computers, furniture. It was all already here. It was like moving into the promised land. But we didn't have much, and it was stressful, and I was constantly stressed by the finances. And one day in my quiet time, I felt the Lord say, Preston, you don't understand how this works. Let me try and help you understand what this is like. It's like the two of us are sitting at a very expensive restaurant together, and the server has just brought the two of us menus. And you have opened up the menu, and it is dawning on you that you can't afford one thing at this restaurant. And Preston, I know you. You try to be too cool for school, so you're trying to come up with a way, I can see it on your face, a cool way to tell the server you've already eaten and you're just going to have water, bread, and butter. Whereas now the server is asking me what I would like for dinner. And I start with salads, and I order four different salads. And then I move to the appetizers, and I'm going to have six different appetizers and share with everybody around. And I haven't even gotten to the entree, Preston, and you are having an all-out panic attack because you actually think I'm going to stick you with my bill. He said, Preston, don't ever forget what I'm about to say to you. Son, I always pay my bill. Preston, if I order it off of the menu, trust and believe I will pay for it. But I'll tell you when you should be stressed, son. If you ever bring me something that I didn't ask for, I'm sticking you with the bill. Completely calibrated me for the rest of my ministerial career. I don't stress anymore. I don't stress about resources. Here's why. My responsibility isn't to bring in resources. My responsibility is to do whatever God says. And if he brings something in, there have been seasons where has, there has been extra. My primary responsibility is to get away, hear the Lord on whatever he wants, even if it doesn't make sense to me. Okay, a couple years ago, it started to become very obvious that one of the things he wanted done at the highest level at this church is children's ministry. He started to speak about it to the extent that Noel, uh, who's one of our best leaders on our staff, actually jumped into the children's ministry and started laying a foundation. And then as this happened, more and more team members, God was drawing staff members and volunteers, and these people were well beyond their years in anointing and gifting. And it became very obvious God was doing something in our children's ministry. And it reminded me, years ago I heard T.D. Jake say something. He said, you can always tell that God's not building a chicken coop, but rather building his temple when you see him bring in the heavy machinery to do it. Listen, money isn't the most valuable resource on the earth. People are. Simply put, pennies are the currency of the earth. People are the currency of heaven. It's great when God brings in extra money. It's far better 
when God brings in gifted and anointed people to minister in the house of the Lord. And he did. He started bringing some incredible team members into this house to steward our children. And when that happens, it's one of the ways God says, son, I'm doing something here. I'm behind it. You better make sure you get behind it. Good investors know what good investments look like. Our children's ministry is one of the best investments in this church, and I am not talking about money. I've been praying leading up to this week that we'd have an influx of godly men and women who would go to our children's ministry and just say, not because we need you to, but because our children and our God deserve you doing it going to the children's ministry and saying, hey, I wanna serve once every two months. I don't care what the term is. That's between you and God. But we have a responsibility to raise up these kids. And that brings us to the third point. We must refuse to lose because we have a mandate. The word mandate means an official order or commission to do something. We have a mandate, a commissioning by the God of the universe to raise up the next generation. But here's the problem. In the church, it's as though we see children like we see cars. Here's what I mean. If I came to you after the service and I tossed you my keys and said, hey, I need you to go fill up my truck with gas. Some of you would be like, oh, okay. Some of you would think it was weird. Some of you I'd be catching at a bad time and you would immediately come back at me and say, that's not mine. That's your truck. You fill it up with gas. Okay. A lot of us see our children that way. I'll take care of mine. You take care of yours. Show me that in the Bible. Show me where in the Bible God says, I want you to take care of your children and no one else's. You cannot find it. We're called to do both. We are literally called to do both. Let me show you in Proverbs 22, verse 6, probably one of the most famous verses related to children in the Bible. Train up your child. Is that what it says? That sounded like Jerry Seinfeld for a second. That's not what it says. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. As a parent, we have the mandate to build up our earthly family. But as his child, we have the mandate to build up our eternal family. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation, not one parent, one generation shall commend your works to another generation and shall declare your mighty acts. But I want you to see In one verse of scripture, what happens when one generation shirks their responsibility of raising up the next generation in the house of the Lord? Go back to the Joshua generation, which we hear talked about all the time. You're the Joshua generation. Truth be told, I don't want to be the Joshua generation. And you're going to see in Judges chapter 2 verse 10 why I don't want to be the Joshua generation. The Joshua generation was the generation that got into the promised land. That's great. I think it's awesome, but I want you to see why I don't want to be the Joshua generation. I want more than that. I don't want to just get in. 
I want you to see what happens. Joshua dies and everyone in his generation dies too. Judges 2 verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. As recipients of God's miracles, we have a responsibility to teach the leaders of tomorrow about what God did yesterday. Joshua's generation was a part of some of the greatest miracles recorded in Scripture. And yet, because it wasn't passed on the way it was supposed to, the generation after didn't even know God. This is what happens when one generation, no matter how incredible the move of God is during their lifetime, this is what happens. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. When one generation shirks their responsibility of raising up the next generation in the house of the Lord. Now, I want you to see scripturally the response I believe we're all to make. It's basically a declaration. When we understand I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have a mandate not just to invest spiritually into my children, but into all children, everyone that comes across our path. When you understand that's your mandate as a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe there's a response, and I want us to read it together. Say this out loud with me, Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This is our responsibility. We've got to tell the stories of what God has done. Think about this. This is just simple math. What happens when someone tells you the story of God's faithfulness in their life? Your faith rises, right? Why don't we do this more? Well, Preston, I'm old and these young people don't want to hear what I have to say. Well, let's be a part of creating a church and a culture where they do. We're doing meet and greet. We have a younger generation pursuing an older generation and saying, hey, can I take you out to coffee or breakfast one day? And where young people go and honor the older generations and learn everything they can from them. And the older generations honor rather than judge, honor the younger generation and invest heavily into them and learn from them as well. This is the way it's supposed to work. We have a responsibility to tell the story of God's faithfulness to the leaders of tomorrow. Whatever you saw God do yesterday, he didn't just do it for that day. He did it for days to come, and you have got to tell the story of all you've seen God do because it inspires the younger generations to walk with the God who did something that miraculous for you, believing he can do it for them too. But I don't want to end this message with the responsibility side because that might be a little too heavy. So let's transition back to the competitive side to try and help you get a little bit more of that I refuse to lose children in the house of the Lord burden and mentality. Let's just say 
you were in a really big battle. And your opponent just so happened to be Satan himself and all of his allies. And you were picking out a weapon, and you go into a room with all of these weapons, and, and you can only pick one. And you first look at the biggest weapon in the room, and then you look at the, the shiniest weapon, and then the, the sharpest weapon, and then the most explosive weapon, and then a small weapon in the corner captures your attention. It's a weapon that doesn't seem to be getting much recognition in the room. And it's as though the second your eyes lock on to this really small weapon, the devil starts chirping. Have you ever played against somebody who was mouthy? You know? And when you play cards with them, you don't just play a card, you slam down the card to try and send them a message because they're just yapping, you know? I don't know if you know this, the devil is the worst yapper in all of history. And you look over at this tiny little weapon in the corner and he starts yapping louder and louder. You don't want that one? That one's not going to do anything against me. Go for the big one. Go for the shiny one. Go for the sharp one. Go for the explosive one. Don't go for the little weapon in the corner no one's paying attention to. Let me show you two passages of scripture why the devil does not want you to begin investing into the next generation. Let me just show you. Psalm 8 verse 2 addresses the yappy nature of the enemy. God, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. God takes children who've been taught of his strength. Why do you think we teach our children what we teach them? We're not just telling them great stories. We are laying a theological foundation for them to build their lives upon. But it's even bigger than that. We love to shut up the enemy. And so we will teach children of God's strength because it shuts up the devil. But there's a second reason why I think the devil tries to convince you not to sow into the next generation in the house of the Lord. Psalm 127 verses 3, 4, and 5. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. Like arrows in a battle. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.